Heavenly Father, I pray that my speech and my message will not be implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Through Jesus Christ, amen. The texts that were read today all center around a particular theme, if you notice. Good works, or fruitfulness, or in the case of Isaiah 5, the lack of fruitfulness of the nation of Israel that led to its exile in Babylon, or fruitlessness as the tree in the gospel parable, and then the fruitfulness of Christ in contrast to the fruitlessness of the Pharisees. Fruitfulness. Years ago, the Lord caught my attention with a passage that was not read today. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. I first remember preaching that text in a very different way, kind of getting it, uh, after we had received a tablecloth from Sally's grandmother, grandmama. It was crochet work, and it was very fine crochet work with thin cotton thread, uh, not yarn. And it astonished me that she had sat for hours, and every one of the little medallions that made up that uh, tablecloth took hours, hand-knit, knotting all these threads into the patterns that they were, putting them together, weaving them together to finally get a tablecloth that was 10 feet long and four and a half feet wide. Now, can you imagine all that? Handiwork, handwork. And then I read in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's handiwork. Uh, You are being woven together, thread by thread, into something beautiful and useful for the Lord. You are created in Christ Jesus, St. Paul says, for good works, for fruitfulness, to make something good. Good as defined by the author of good, by the way, which is important to keep in mind, because what the world says is good is quite often not good, but what Jesus says is good and what Jesus gives is always good. And good works not for our glory, but by definition, for the sake of others. That's really important. In other words, good that benefits others in ways that are beyond even perhaps our understanding, which is all of this is sort of a riff on a familiar verse that Jesus says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works, right, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Through the good works that we do, we are to reveal who God is. We are to embody who God is. We are to embody the character of God. Clearly, good works and fruitfulness, you see it all through the scriptures, good works for the sake of people so that other people are blessed and fed and, and, and see the goodness of God. That's important to God. It's how he calls us to co-labor with him in the kingdom of God. It's a core calling of disciples of Jesus. Now, the book of Titus speaks of good works, and we didn't you know, I'm not going to preach from that Ephesians 2 passage because what Titus says is really set in kind of a more, I think, a more powerful context if you want to know the truth. Uh, it's a very short little book. In my Bible, it's one and a third pages. If you have a Bible and you open it up, it doesn't take a lot of space. If you have a phone, you're welcome to turn to Titus chapter 2, uh, as long as you turn the ringer off, please. But in the book of Titus, Paul uses the phrase good works six times. He's 
sending Titus to Crete to appoint presbyters, and he instructs that they must be lovers of good. He speaks of people who profess the Christian faith but deny it by the fact that their works are not good. They don't produce any good. He speaks of older women who teach what is good to the younger women. He speaks of the goodness of God. You put it all together, and there are 10 references to good works or to goodness in the book of Titus. Clearly, that was on his mind as he wrote this letter to Titus and sent him to Crete. And it may well have had something to do with the gospel's credibility in Crete. Please hear me here. Crete was a uniquely unchristian culture. It was violent, it was untrustworthy, it was dominated by deceptive practices, snake oil salesmen, you know, gluttony, lying, deception. And Paul seems to know that if the gospel is to penetrate into a world that is filled with unethical, immoral behavior, Christians need to be demonstrating goodness as much as saying anything about goodness. It needs to be embodied so that it breaks through into people's minds. But it was important that Paul put the con- good, put good works into the context of a greater context, though it would be no mistake about where the good works fit, our actions fit, into the overall plan of redemption. So in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, which we read, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's no question here in the gospel where the beginning of a life of good works and where the sustaining of a life of good works is. It's grace. Grace which we learn about in letters to the Romans, for instance. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you know this passage, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace that he defines more fully in chapter 5 when he says this, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is grace? Grace is giving, being given what we don't deserve. It's being loved when we don't deserve. It's being loved when we don't care, when we don't give a thought to it. And grace is a full stop at the door of the Christian life. In other words, it's like a ticket to get in. <laughs> you got to say, I have been saved by grace. And you got to believe it in your part. At some point in our lives, we must believe in a real way that we are loved and forgiven by Jesus Christ, even though we do not deserve it. And whether that's a moment in time and you can think back in your life when there was this moment when it all came clear to you, and I can do that, but for a lot of people, it's not. It's not some decisive moment, but it soaks in. One of the people who told their story last night told about how she had grown up in the church, faithful in the church, active in the church, and never knew that she really needed Jesus Christ. I mean, she, it's not that she didn't believe in him, but it was just like, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's okay, he's good, he's fine. But then they moved to a different church, and sitting under the Word of God, it sort of began to soak in that 
this life is dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And she said, suddenly I realized I was a Christian. I had believed. I, I, I received Christ. And in this regard, grace not only is the way we begin the life, but Paul says it's the way we walk the rest of our lives. And here's the point I'd really like us to think about in this context of good works. Paul says in verse 13, excuse me, let me check that. No, verse 12, that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So grace welcomes us in the door. It's by grace we are welcomed, but it's by grace we are trained. And that got my attention. And I wanted to think about, and I began to think about, what does it mean that grace trains me? Sinful deeds, to renounce ungodliness, sinful deeds are rooted in wrong thinking and wrong hearts. And grace relentlessly roots out our wrong thinking and confusion about who God is. It roots out our resistances and confusion. One of the stories that was told last night is from another woman who said, I believe when I first walked with Christ for years and years, or kind of came to the faith, that God was obligated to accept me, but he didn't love me. And over time, what shifted in her was that grace retrained her thinking. And she began to think differently about God and began to realize that there was never a day in all of eternity when God did not look at her with eyes of love. And I say that to you today, by the way. There's never a day in all of eternity when God does not look at you through eyes of love. And so you can know, you can bank on the fact, it can retrain your soul so that rather than this sense of doom living with you or this sense that you are really just sort of like reluctantly in the field or the end of the fold, you are welcomed. You're beloved's daughters and beloved sons. And he sees you through that eyes of love. Grace, mercy, and love transform us. It retrains us. Sinful desires, through God's grace, our hearts are transformed as we come to know again and again and again that when we have failed, we even prayed it today, we are just simply not strong enough to stand up. And yet God meets us in our weakness again and again and again with his love, mercy, and grace. And as that soaks into us, it changes us. It trains us. It transforms us. That we live with this undeserved free love. It's like an ocean in its fullness. There's always enough. And it also is enough for us to be with us. So we are never, ever abandoned by God. And that's what produces fruitfulness. That's what begins to set us free to really do good for the sake of others. So that there is this delight, this hilarity almost that comes like, you know, I, I can treat, I don't have to tell you what an idiot I think you are. I can actually say I love you because I realize God has not told me what an idiot I am, right? And it begins to shift you and change you in the ways that you perspective. Now, the image that God uses, it seems like his favorite image over all of this is agricultural. You know, he talks about olive trees and grapevines, and it's the basis of the rebuke to Israel. I created you and planted you and cultivated you so that life would flow through you for the sake of the world. And he rebuked Israel because I gave you all of this, but you produced sour grapes. Then there's the parable, and I want you to think with me just a second. There's the parable in Luke chapter 13, where there's this tree that had 
doesn't produce any fruit. And so in the parable, the owner is going to cut it down. And the worker says, let's let it sit for a little while, see if we can turn some things around here. What will be different? What's going to happen in the difference here? They're going to put what on the soil? Remember the story? Manure. They're going to put refuse. They're going to put garbage. And what's going to happen is, will that soil allow the garbage to be absorbed to become, so that it becomes fertile and rich and fruitful? Now, I say all that is because that's how I think grace works in our lives. Grace enables us to receive the refuse that comes our way and realize God's goodness and purposes and all of that. And it begins to soak into us so that the fertility grows, the fruitfulness grows as we receive the refuse from God, I mean, from, from the world. Hum, humus has the same root word as humility and the same root word as hum, human. So it's like to be human requires the humility to become humus through the grace of God. Grace trains us. And we realize that everything that comes our way is come filtered through the Father's hand. And he is good. And it can be turned to good in his great power. I want to encourage you, and here is the reality, disciples. Once we let go of good works and accomplishments as the means of self-justifying ourselves before the Lord, as we receive the grace of God in Christ, God begins to retrain us. And this leads to truly good works for the sake of others, a path of good works, as I said before, that allows us to shout with laughter and joy that everything we know starts with God's grace in our lives. And God's program of fruitfulness and blessing for the others, for the sake of others, and for the glory of God begins to work its way in our lives through the grace of God. And we learn that Jesus again and again gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the questions, particularly for the confirmands and, uh, and those being received today, and really for all of us as disciples, how has God crafted you to do good? What is the story, the tapestry, the handiwork of your life? I encourage you to think about your life and pay attention particularly to the dark times as well as the bright times. Because it's in the dark times when God meets us and realizes and we help to realize he is there and present and loving us even in these difficult times that we work our way through. As well as in the great moments of joy and transcendence that our longings and our hungers are stirred up. The things that mean the most to us, the things that we want to see changed in our lives and the lives of others begin to come out of the dark times as well as the joyous times. And there's this convergence when we begin to see that life is filled with the purposes of God overshadowed by the grace of God. And God begins to rewrite our souls. Years ago, one of the first times I did confirmation, and there was a woman who I asked, how do you want me to pray for you? And she said, well, I'm a violin teacher, and I'm really good. I'm a really, really good violin teacher. 
I've done, I've practiced, I've learned, I've got great skills. I'm a, I teach people how to play the violin very well. But I cannot stand my students. They drive me crazy. I don't like them. So would you pray for me that I would love my students? She said, because I know until I love my students, I can teach them the violin, but I can't teach them to play music. And so I prayed for her that she would be filled with the love of God for her students. And at confirmation, the Lord really met her in a very powerful way because he poured out his love upon her life. And because of the love of God, the grace of God poured out in her life, she began to really open up her heart to the other people that she was working with every day. So I encourage you to realize that the love of God poured out upon your life through the grace in Jesus Christ begins to soften and crack your own soul. And you begin to realize God's eyes of love are always focused on you. That God's power of grace is always present to meet you in the darkest moments. That God will take the things in your life where the pain has been great as well as the joy has been great and weave that into the things that you long to do and you can pay attention to your longings and realize it's in those longings that God wants to weave your life into a story of his grace and his goodness. I encourage you to open up your heart. Pray about it. Take that seriously. I mean, literally look at your life and go, where are the great pains as where are the great joys? And pay attention to those as the ones where God brings together your heart and where God weaves into your heart the things that he has called you to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.